Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. In this program, we'll look at books, ideas, new research, intellectual currents, and cultural trends that can help us better understand what's happening in China's politics, foreign relations, economics, and society. Join me each week for in-depth conversations that shed more light and bring less heat to the way we think and talk about China. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Happy Year of the Dragon to all the listeners. It is great to be back. Seneca is supported this year by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a national resource center for the study of East Asia. As we kick off this new season, I want you all to know that I won't be charging a subscription for Seneca, but if you work for an organization that believes in what I'm doing with the podcast, please consider lending your support. You can get me at SenecaPod at gmail.com. You can also support me as an individual on patreon.com slash Seneca. There will be a link in the show notes and sign up for the new Seneca Substack, which I'll tell you more about later on. I also want to take this opportunity to say a huge thank you to Anla Cheng. Anla, who was the owner and the founder of the China Project, made it possible for Jeremy and for me and for all of the other people on our team to do the work that we did for seven and a half amazing and memorable years. I'm grateful to her for trusting in our editorial judgment and never at all interfering in the work that we did. I want to thank her for her just incredible generosity, not just in terms of the not inconsiderable amount of money she put into the project, but also just her generosity of spirit, her kindness, and her dedication to the mission that we were all a part of. So thank you, Anla. And I really miss these people that I got a chance to work with. You put together a first-rate team that I was extremely proud to be a part of. So in this episode, I wanted to just have a good old heart-to-heart with my dear friend, Jeremy Goldcorn, co-founder with me of Seneca in 2010, and who was, of course, editor-in-chief of The China Project, which published Seneca from 2016 until the end of last year. Jeremy is actually best known as the evil mastermind behind the Taylor Swift-Travis Kelsey Super Bowl conspiracy and uh, is really vexed that not only were his machinations ferreted out by vigilant patriots doing their own research, 
uh, but were wrongly attributed to the Department of Defense and not to Jeremy Goldhorn. Anyway, glad that we could set the record straight. Congratulations. You pulled it off masterfully. Uh, welcome back. Thank Please. you, Kaiser. Those stupid idiots, they didn't get the Nashville connection, you know. Taylor's from yeah, Nashville. Yeah. I'm from Nashville, you know. And yeah, they the just... first thing you did, you had her, like, endorse somebody in, in, in lieu of Marsha Blackburn, right? That's your first coup, right? One, one of my first moves here in the great state of Tennessee. That was, that was brilliant, yeah. Good anyway, night. enough of this nonsense, Kaiser. Before we get into the meat of the show, I would like to ask you, Kaiser, and I'm sure listeners are very interested in hearing what you're planning for Seneca for the Year of the Dragon ahead. Are you going to change anything about the show or focus on anything in particular? Yeah, I'm sure. I've, I've had a whole lot of conversations with people who listen to the show who have been on it. I always think there's ways to improve what I'm doing. The main thing is that even though this is going to remain a current affairs program, I am going to try not to let the news cycle dictate topics too much. And I will try to do more of those in-depth, deep dive, kind of big questions sorts of topics and, and guests that people really seem to like and that, frankly, I am most interested in doing. Uh, also, never fear, Jeremy will occasionally come back on the program, dear listeners, either as a guest or as a co-host. But he's got some other things that he'll be working on, which hopefully he's going to spill the beans and tell you about. Uh, not sure he's ready yet, but um, you certainly have not heard the last of Jeremy Goldcorn on Seneca. So, Jeremy, man, it's just it's great to see your, your, your lovely face. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kaiser. I think perhaps you're the only person who would describe my face thusly. But anyway, fortunately, <laughs> this is an audio program, so... Uh, uh, who's to know? And uh, yeah, I will be delighted to be back as often as I can. Excellent, excellent. So Jeremy, let's start uh, with today's show with the whole demise of this thing that we did for the last seven and a half years, the China Project, nay, China. Uh, it's all wrapped up now. We have sat Shiva and mourned its passing properly. And uh, hopefully we are both ready to talk about the whole experience. Um, so I want you to start, Jeremy regrets, things you wish we had done differently, things you're especially proud of? Maybe maybe we should tell the story uh, for those listening who, who don't know how it all started or how, how, we, how we got going. Well, yeah, I mean, regrets, I've had a few, but I did it my way. Um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> I think we should start at the beginning. Perhaps we can go right back to the beginning, to Beijing in uh, 1997, I guess it must have been, when we first met. Yeah. Uh, you were a famous rock star. Uh, with Tang Dynasty. Uh, I was a fresh-faced editor working on a startup English print magazine called Beijing Scene. But you were also, aside from being a rock star, perhaps at that point a somewhat washed-up rock star, you were an editor for <laughs> a rival startup on the brand new internet uh, called China Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was in, yeah, 99, yeah. And we had a lot of mutual interests, I guess. Over the next decade, we became friends with a shared love of the city of Beijing, primarily, I think, is what we bonded over. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Good writing about it, books, late nights in low places, music, food. And then in 2010, um, when podcasts were just starting to become uh, more and more popular, but they hadn't really gone mainstream yet, you suggested that there was a space for one focused on Chinese current affairs. Uh, there weren't any at the time. Yeah, um, We had a mutual friend named David Lancashire uh, who was running a Chinese learning app, language learning app and podcast called Pop-Up Chinese. And he mm -hmm, had a studio mm -hmm. uh, and he was producing podcasts. So I suggested we could uh, ask him if he might produce a show for us. And then we would help publicize his language learning company. And the two of us were already quite well known 
uh, amongst the uh, journalist and media community in Beijing and in China, you partly for Tang Dynasty and your other music projects, but also for journalism, and me for uh, Dunway, my website and YouTube channel about Chinese media and urban life. Ah, that YouTube channel, <laughs> the hard hat show. That's right. And I'm just uh, looking at the date now to confirm. April the 2nd, 2010, we published the first Seneca podcast with Bill Bishop yeah. as guest about Google's pullout from China. In some ways, the perfect topic for the first show. Yeah, it really was. Uh, Google's big announcement about its refusal to comply with China's censorship demands had come in January. I think it was like around January 9th, if I remember. But the actual pullout, the other shoe hadn't dropped yet. And uh, it wasn't until the end of March that they took that pretty drastic action. And uh, yeah, Bill was a perfect guest for that as well. And it's weird how we didn't do much planning for it, right? It just sort of happened and, and the format just sort of stuck. It was <laughs> without, without a lot of thought going into it. It's remarkable how similar that first show is to even, you know, the one we're probably going to do today. Yeah, yeah. Probably more similar than it's been in the last seven years because, you know, it got a whole lot more formal. But I mean, it'll stay still, I think, um, more like the last seven years than, than the six preceding it. But, uh, you know, we started off, I think, with a real focus on news of the week, um, though I think after, really, after the first year, we started doing shows, I think, deliberately with longer shelf life, you know, interviews with authors, sometimes taking on historical topics you know, that were completely unrelated to current affairs. But yeah, the show show has evolved a little bit across the years. You know, one thing that we, we stuck to pretty religiously was having recommendations and and that's definitely going to still remain a part of the show i think that's uh that's an a lot of people really like it i mean i have to be honest it sometimes drives me completely crazy because uh, you know especially when I, I was on weekly I, I would sometimes feel you know it's been a week the world isn't that good of a place that i have another <laughs> good thing to recommend <laughs> but anyhow <laughs> it, it definitely made me read a lot because it's like jesus do i have a, another decent book to recommend so yeah, yeah yeah and yeah. Th there was one i remember i don't remember the name of the book but you recommended one that was appalling so but I, I i think most of them have been hits and a lot of people write in to say how much they like the recommendations yeah yeah so we did the show um it was a hobby for both of us from 2010 until 2016 um i moved to the united states in 2015 and i was still working for dunway which by that point had been acquired by the financial times and you were mm -hmm. still working for baidu Mm -hmm. But you were about to move to the States and you had to have a change of career because you'd no longer be in Beijing. Uh, and you called me up with an idea about doing the podcast. And I, maybe you can talk about how we initially got involved with the China project or sub-China as yeah. it was known back then. Let, let, me, let me just one little correction. I actually didn't have to change careers. Baidu was actually about to move me to California. Um, and it was actually that when Fanfan and I took a trip to California, the house hunt, and we were just so appalled at how much houses cost and how terrible the traffic was. And I thought, you know, hey, we already live in a city with terrible traffic congestion and really overpriced housing uh, with maybe the sole consolation of excellent Chinese food. So do we really even need to move if I mean? Right. So, I see. Yeah. yeah. So no. But, um, so North Carolina was a choice and leaving Baidu was a choice. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. a scheme, actually. I, I really, you know, sort of, there were other jobs on the table, actually. I'm, I'm very glad. I, I'm sure if I'd taken one of them, I'd be very wealthy, but also probably divorced and, and miserable in other ways. But I, you know, almost willed this into existence. Like, I, we came back from that trip and, um, you know, went back to work. 
And I got an email from a guy named Amadeo Tumalillo. And Amadeo was the newly hired editor of a little startup out of, of New York. And he and his partner were in town in Beijing and wanting to meet people who knew something about, you know, the media business in China, who knew something about, you know, the, the, the whole landscape of, of what they call China watchers. And so I invited him out to the Baidu campus. We sat down and started talking, and it was pretty clear to me that they didn't really have any real assets for them except for money. And I thought, gosh, <laughs> maybe they would like to buy an existing uh, podcast that has a pretty sizable listenership already uh, and two guys who are both kind of eager to quit their day jobs <laughs> and, and do this full time. And, yeah, so do you remember we, we wrote up this little proposal and like within a week we had a deal it was nuts yeah although it was quite scary because the deal was uh sort of uh had uh back out back out clauses for 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 them at the at that point we both had to you know jump off the cliff and leave our our day jobs to do it but it worked out yeah yeah and i'm 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 really really thankful i got seven and a half years to do the i mean to you know to pull down a steady salary and, you know, to be able to still pursue some extracurricular things uh, and, you know, most importantly, to try to do the mission, right? To, to take something that had been a hobby for both of us and turn it into something serious. Now, I, I don't think people realize that when we signed on for this thing, we were only obliged to turn in one podcast a week. That was the whole, that was the whole deal for, for the same salary that we continued to draw for, you know, the next seven years. Uh, you stepped up. I mean, you, you decided you wanted to be, you know, editor of this thing, right? You wanted to be editor-in-chief. And I, I wanted to expand. I wanted to do a whole podcast network. So, yeah, it's – it's it's uh anyway, but I want to get back to, you know, my question about the China Project. About, you know, you said regrets, right? I mean, what, what do you wish you had done differently? But also, what are you especially proud of having done? Um, you know, I don't actually have too many regrets. I, I think – it's easy to look back and say, you know, I, I could have spent more time on this or that uh, rather than uh, something else. But I, I think publishing as a business and editing, and particularly editing and writing about China, it's it's not there, there are no obvious answers to exactly how to do it right, either as a, a a business that's supposed to make a profit or in terms of the the quality and the value of of the editorial that you're creating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I don't really think I have uh, real regrets. Uh, I mean, I worked hard. We had a lot of fun. We published a lot of different things. I I think what I'm most proud of is, I mean, I I guess our listeners are probably familiar with the concept of the Overton window, the spectrum of acceptable discourse. And it's often used sort of negatively in American political context recently, you know, that, you know, Trump says these terrible things and it widens the Overton window so other people feel free to say racist things. But I think there's a, with China, I I feel as though... um, we made people who don't generally listen to views sympathetic of China listen to views sympathetic to China. And we made people who don't usually listen to views very critical of China listen to views that were very critical of China. Right. Um, and I, I think that's, uh, you know, if I had to sort of say an abstract thing that I'm proud of, I, I think that's what we did. Um, 
and you know, uh, I, I'm proud of all the podcasts, the podcast network we developed, which you know helped encourage a, a huge range of voices. You know, from Cynic yeah. itself to uh, we worked with the uh, China Africa Project and the China Global South Project and uh, helped them to to grow, and a bunch of other podcasts, some of which are still going, and some yeah. of which uh, were short seasons. I think we did a really amazing job of of covering a, an enormous range of of different types of subjects from, you know, artificial intelligence and semiconductors to Xi Jinping to, you know, elite politics. We did a lot of really great stuff on youth and internet culture, oh, on yeah. feminism, um, on LGBTQ issues. Well, we had and Jia Yun as kind of a secret weapon in that, in that regard. She was just so on top of that stuff that was marvelous to have. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I like our I liked our coverage of China's relations with countries that don't usually make it much into the anglophone press. You know, small countries like um, you know Timor Leste. Uh, you know, countries like Sudan, uh, Indonesia, Israel, Pakistan. Um, yeah, uh, we published some amazing columns uh, this week in China's History by oh, Jay yeah. Carter, James Carter. You know, I'm, I'm talking to Jay uh, later today about seeing whether we can still, you know, keep his column going in some way. That would be fantastic. So, I mean, that, that yeah, was yeah. such a wonderful column. And in fact, it wasn't me who found that. It was Bob Guterma, our CEO, who, who was yeah, the one who approached yeah. Jay about it. And it turned out to be one of the, the, the best things we did editorially. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I really had a lot of fun with Paul French's Ultimate China Bookshelf. Oh, yeah, he's uh, great. Which, All, everything uh, Paul did for us was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um you know, uh, there was Queer China, mostly written by Nathan Way, which, uh, you know, was a regular regular coverage of issues serious and frivolous in, yeah. in China's LGBTQ community. Yeah. We published a lot of stuff about um, what's going on in Xinjiang, the Uyghur Bulletin uh, uh, and Window on Xinjiang uh, by Darren Byler, which I think uh, covered uh, the Uyghur crisis and uh, atrocities in Xinjiang with a level of granularity that no other English language media has done. Um, just because yeah, we, well, it wasn't just granularity, but also you know, I mean, Darren Darren is is really authoritative, but also fact based, and he's grounded, and he's just extremely, you know, n- you know, I, I know you hate the word nuanced, but he 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 did it with with nuance. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't really hate it. I hate the way it's used a lot of <laughs> yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I don't hate the player. I hate the game. No, I don't <laughs> hate the game. I hate the player. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, another really fun column was Phrase of the Week by Andrew Methven, which took oh, God, often yeah. you know, a word that was being uh, used a lot on the Chinese internet and in Chinese media and explained us with a great deal of background information. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm probably leaving somebody out that I, I should uh, I should mention, but those are some of the things that uh, right now come to mind. Um, you know, we published more than 400 contributors' work, right? And almost every one of them, I'm extremely proud of. Yeah, I, there are some people I think who even you know, I mean, after we announced our demise, a lot of them came out and said, you know, hey, this is where I got my start. This, these people gave me a chance. They were the first people to pay me for my writing. I've now gone on to blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah, I mean, in our long history, if you look at people who have interned for us, uh, who've gone on to pretty, you know, stellar journalism careers, I'm, I'm very, very happy with what we've done. Even before we, we joined, you know, with, um, with Anla Cheng and SubChina, then the China Project. Yeah. I, want, I wanted to say something about the work that you did there, which I, I'm not really sure people fully appreciate, because you worked your ass off. I, I had 
I got to say, I had the, you once said you, you get to be the tenured professor of our, of our outfit. Yeah. It kind of was <laughs> the case. Yeah. I had the leisure to read a lot. I mean, I, I, I had to, right. For, for the show, right. I wanted to, I this, this thing where I read the book if I'm going to interview an author. Right. But I, I got to direct a lot of effort into that one show each week. Plus, of course, all the engineering and the editing and the production work on the other shows in the network, sure. But um, let's just say this. I mean, you had to deal with a lot more day-to-day aggravation than I did. It's, it's absolutely true. I'm super grateful to you for that. But, you know, one thing we always talked about, you weren't able to ever get off what we internally were calling the editorial hamster wheel. You weren't actually just the editor-in-chief. You acted, you, you functioned as a managing editor, I feel like. You think that's, that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, media startups are, are punishing. It's, it's, it's one of the most difficult businesses in the world. And it's incredibly difficult to figure out the right balance between the quantity of output and the quality of output and, you know, what your reward is for that, both financial and uh, in terms right. of emotion. So, I mean, I think that was, you know, the company before you and I joined, the initial product was a daily email newsletter. And that kind of defined the pace for the whole of the company's life. And a daily deadline is a a very, it's a bitch. Yeah, yeah. It's a bitch. It's the work of Sisyphus, you know. Yeah. Every day you got to roll the boulder back up the hill. Or, you know, Bob used to talk about it, our CEO, Bob Gutama, used to say that it's like running a bakery, the media business. Right. Every day you got to make fresh bread. And if the bread sucks and somebody eats the bad bread that day, they'll think you're a bad bakery, which is right. different from other kinds of businesses where you don't have to make the product fresh every day. Yeah, man. You know, I think from the very beginning when we started doing this show, there were uh, – clear sort of stylistic, not just stylistic, sort of political differences in the way that you and I approached talking about China. Maybe it's a little bit of a sensitive question, but how would you characterize that difference? I mean, if you, I mean, is it, it's not as simple as, oh, he's a panda hugger, oh, he's a dragon slayer. Um, I mean, I often get criticized by people who saw me uh, as one of them, you know, like that the, they, they thought I should be in their camp. I'm like, you know, quote unquote pro-China. But you know, because I had this professional association with you, because I was always defending, you know, things that you would you would say that were at odds with my own thoughts or beliefs, you know, people would get pretty angry with me. And I'm absolutely sure the same thing happened to you. So how did you answer them? And, and how would you characterize that difference? Well, I, you know, I mean, I think in some ways it is as simple as a panda hug and a dragon slayer. Uh, it, or, you know, perhaps to be more accurate, it's that your first reaction to some piece of news about China is to look at it from the point of view of China, which can mean the government, the Communist Party, can mean just ordinary Chinese people. But your first instinct will be to uh, look at it from a sympathetic point of view. Empathetic. Empathetic, let's call it. Empathetic, yeah, that's right. Whereas my first instinct probably dating back to about 2009 or so, has been to look at it from a critical point of view and to find, you know, because it is a problem in, I think, in the the China watching community, the business community about China, is that it is a Sino-foreign relations. There's a lot of people who uh, like to uh, sugarcoat the truth or 
slightly tweak what they're saying in order to make it more comfortable for, you know, the Communist Party or our Chinese mm. guests or the Chinese partner. Right. Whereas um, I would see the problem as being there are more people, you know, who uh, refuse to sort of reach for any additional context to just sort of look at everything completely out of context and, and are really, really quick to sort of pass sort of moral pronouncement on, on, on things. Without, yeah. Yeah. That's right. And I mean, I, I think the, the odd thing probably is that both of us, uh, you know, if faced, you know, if I'm in a room full of uh, ignorant people saying terrible things about China, um, I'm going to sound a lot more like you than I usually do. Right. And I would imagine you're the same. Yeah, absolutely the same. I end up sounding a lot more like you channel my inner Jeremy Goldcorn um, when I hear, yeah, a bunch of just sort of slavish, idiotic, complete... Well, Tanky talk. Sugar yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Tanky talk. Right. But yeah, um, I think the whole, the, that the balance worked and I think it, it, it worked because, you know, even though we would fight, we would have, you know, arguments in editorial meetings all the time, but they were never personal and they were never... I mean, most they were of the always, time, you know, I think we both face, got right? quite angry at, 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 at a few, a few points, but not often. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I think the other thing, though, Kaiser, is that uh, to, I mean, I think to to understand China, China's history, where it's going, where it is right now, it it, it feels to me like you need something like the scientific method. You know, you need to be able to constantly reassess your ideas and sometimes change your mind about yeah. things because. It's it's a complex beast, you know. It's, uh, it, I mean, you know, the the elephant parable, right? You, right. Um, the five blind men touching the elephant, and the one touches the tusk, thinks it's like a spear, and the one touches the leg, thinks it's a tree, and the one touches the trunk, thinks it's a snake. And it's very easy when looking at China to get stuck on just the little bit that you're touching. And it's very important to have your assumptions challenged frequently. It's funny, I, I just use that, just the other day, I gave a talk in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the the blind man and the elephant was the thing. And I was in in the context of these days, it's all tusk. You know, that is, it's that weapon of war thing. Um, everyone just looks through that one lens of national security, and right, which tusk I think and is a, snake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, tusk or snake. Right. If you're in the intelligence community, maybe it's snake. And yeah. yeah. Anyway, but, I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that both of us brought you know our own kind of prejudices into it our own emotional baggage that's you know created by our own personal experiences there in china good and bad and i gotta say i mean i had a lot of really good ones um, i'm sure you did too but you also had some very bad experiences um my bad experiences were, were relatively few they've just been you know i think they're they're fun stories to tell but on balance you know i was on this hilltop surveying the surrounding countryside and seeing a lot of you know happiness and a lot of progress and a lot of excitement i mean working in in the tech industry there uh and then you know getting to play with a bunch of really amazing musicians yeah i i had a pretty happy time and you know you not always right no i mean you know most of the time i was very happy and i i, I can't pretend to have you know really suffered but i mean if it, going right back to my very first experience i mean most of my experience was doing small entrepreneurial things mostly in the media space so i i was constantly running into you know low level and sometimes high level trouble with the authorities uh in a way that you simply weren't at baidu where you know you have 
like some of the smartest, you know, most liberal-minded people in China in this beautiful office. And, you know, it's one of, at the time, certainly, you know, one of China's national champions and uh, one of the the parts of China that when you look at it, you think, wow, that's good, you know. Whereas yeah. I think yeah. I often would run into problems of the parts of China where you think, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's as simple as that. I, I don't know if all of our listeners know your whole storied past. I mean, you, you just made reference to having been in a bunch of media startups, and that goes back all the way to, what, 90s, 97 or so. Um, Give us a highlight reel, Jeremy. Tell us about you know your your involvement. So you, you mentioned Beijing scene at the very beginning. And, so and then, yeah, that was what? my first media job, uh, startup uh, print weekly newspaper modeled on American Alt Weekly, started by a guy named Scott Savitt, who was a, uh, a very gifted publisher in certain ways, but uh, also you know got into a lot more trouble than I ever did for a whole bunch of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that not gave all of them me, related to you know his uh, passion for for you know journalistic integrity, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but it was. I mean, Scott kind of taught me how to operate like a startup business in Beijing, which was basically don't listen to any rules, just do whatever the hell you want, and say sorry when they come after you. So, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, a curse on him for the rest of my career. But um, so I quit that just before it, it, its final collapse in 2000. And then I joined, you know, uh, it was dot-com boom time. So I joined Phoenix Eye, which was a joint venture between Phoenix TV and uh, some VC people in California. And I lived <laughs> in Mountain View for a few oh, months. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. yeah I remember uh, that. Chris Barden and I were the only... Lawai on the team. So it was quite weird. I moved to America for a little while, but everybody I worked with, except for one guy, and everybody I socialized with was Chinese. So it was this kind of weird Chinese bubble in Silicon Valley. And I, I quit that just before its demise, because it was, you know, the, the, the market crashed, that it was the dot-com crash, and I could see which way <laughs> things were going. And I went back to Beijing, and I started a magazine called R, which was a listings magazine, sort of, you know, like based on the listing section of Beijing scene, which by then time was long gone. Uh, and it was bilingual, print as well. And we did, I don't know, I think about seven or eight issues, and I sold it to a media company named CIMG, started by a lady named Hong oh, Huang, wow. who uh, yeah. is sort of relatively well-known in China, at least amongst a, a certain generation, entrepreneur, and uh, she was one of the early group of people to uh, come to high school uh, and university in, in the United States. Yeah, um, yeah. Her mother was uh, you know, Mao's English teacher and translator so it was a kind of you know she she knew her way around Beijing uh, and she was starting this publishing company so she acquired our magazine and for various reasons we changed its name into Lure as in you know happiness Zhao Lure yeah I Uh, remember that and so we we ran that for a while and that eventually was sold uh, and became Time Out magazine which I think is still going in Beijing yeah Um, yeah oh I didn't know that that was the origin of Time Out there yeah interesting yeah wow okay um just became sort of the Beijing franchisee of the whole time-out empire, huh? Yeah, but uh, then it was no longer with CIMG, you know, media okay, business. Yeah. It's oh, man, Huang is such a character, my God. I mean, one day we can do a whole show on her. <laughs> yeah, I, I have some good interviews with her on YouTube, actually, from a, yeah. a little after those days. But um, uh, 
And at that time, also, we launched a magazine. This was her brainchild called Red Egg, uh, which was, you know, slightly a copy of Red Herring. It was a technology magazine. Where I happened uh, to be working at the time, yeah. Where you were working at the time. Uh, so yeah. it was Chinese language, and Huang decided to make me the editor-in-chief. Now, I mean, my Chinese <laughs> is, uh, is self-taught. Uh, I'm, I'm very good at reading state media, and I can write in Chinese okay, uh, but it was quite an eccentric idea. But, it, you know, it, it kind of worked. But CIMG was also full of dot-com bloat. And as the cash began to wind down, you know, some of the publications closed down. And that included Red Egg, unfortunately. And then I worked, I helped Mark Kitto, who was the founder of That's Beijing and that, That's Shanghai originally. Uh, yeah. uh, which uh, I helped him launch That's Beijing. That was just like a short job. And that's now the Beijing, yeah. uh, still going, I believe. But, you know, one of the things that you did as the launch editor was you enlisted me as the back page columnist. Right. And you wrote this for many years, this wonderful column about Beijing. It was really like a love song to Beijing, the column. Sure. Really. It's called <laughs> Ich bin ein Beijing. Yeah. 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 So some of the most lovely descriptions of the city. And in fact, you, you published a book of the columns, didn't you? I did. I did in yeah. 2009. That's right. uh, not all of them. I mean, if anyone's interested, I have them all. I mean, I can send somebody a PDF of the whole damn thing. I mean, all actually, the Send it to did. me, actually, please. <laughs> uh, I will, I will, I will. Yeah, uh, yeah. so, uh, and then I kind of, uh, I, you know, the media business, I, 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 I was, why, I should have listened to myself all the time ago. The media business was clearly rather exhausting. So I went into <laughs> business with a couple of friends. But you're a glutton for punishment, apparently, yeah. Uh, doing advertising and graphic design. Um, we started this little design firm. Mauro Marashali. Yeah. Mauro Marashali and uh, Jonathan Leon Hifud and Jacobo Della Ragione yeah. for Lawai. We started this design and advertising firm. And I did that for a while, but I, I had thought that it would offer the same kind of creative satisfaction as media, but it would be more profitable and without the government trying to shut you down all the time. But I hated it. I, I really, I couldn't work for clients. You know, I think the, 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 the low point uh, was client at one point, the worst. Yeah. we did this design for this um, luxury hotel for some graphic design stuff. And we'd passed through many rounds of approvals and the basic logo was like a based on squares and rectangles because it was Beijing and it was, you know, the city map of Beijing is all squares and rectangles. Sure. And the big boss came from Hong Kong, Cantonese-speaking Hong Kong guy. And he said to us, no, no, we can't have this. Uh, this is Ch Chinese people like round things. Um, so you've got to change it all. And I think that was the day I thought, you know, I can't do this anymore. Um, and I started a <laughs> website uh, called Dunway, dunway.org. It was based on, you know, blogging had become very big. Uh, and it had become very interesting because 2003 was the year the Iraq war started. So you had left-wing and right-wing people, pro- and anti-war people in the United States blogging. And it suddenly I realized any idiot can start a website. Uh, you know, it's that easy. Um, you just, there was a slight technical hurdle, you know, a bit more difficult than getting on Facebook, basically. But... Um, so I started this website and um, it was initially translations from the Chinese media and commentary on the Chinese media. And then it grew to encompass, you know, publishing a fairly wide range of different kinds of writing. But usually uh, the slogan was uh, media, um, Chinese media, Internet and urban life. Right. Uh, I think we, advertising we, was in there at one point. Advertising, right, yeah, right. advertising at one point. Um, so we covered the advertising business, the media business. Then we started making videos with Luke Mines and Anna-Sophie Lewenberg called mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Downway TV. Sexy Beijing, right? 
Yeah, so we had the hard hat show where I'd wander around the city with a, a hard hat, which was a kind of symbol of Beijing at the time because everywhere was a construction site full of, and I was a migrant worker like the people wearing the yellow hard hats and sexy Beijing, which was sort of a, a bit of a parody in, uh, of, of sex in the city, which was very popular in Beijing at the time amongst right. young women. But it was a, an interview show where Anna Sophie would go around asking people slightly embarrassing questions about romance and English names and things like that. So that was a lot of fun. And um, that, uh, but uh, in 2000, and, you know, it was a struggle. I mean, I, I, the, I was very poor for many years. Often, you know, I, I'd go out to dinner with like 50 yuan in my pocket and just hope that no, you know, either somebody else would pay for the dinner or, you know, that I wouldn't, get stuck you know, <laughs> having to admit that I had like at, literally my net worth was like 50 yuan, you know, like $10. That's <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, we started doing research work to pay the bills, uh, research on, on internet and social media for companies and financial institutions. And that eventually grew into a real business, which is basically what the financial times was more interested in, in buying right. the, 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 uh, as a business anyway. But, um, so we carried on doing that for a while. Uh, and then, um, you know, after selling it, I, uh, I had kids and my wife and I wanted to move, uh, to the States uh, back for her because she'd come to college here and become an American citizen. And for me, it was the first time to really properly, well, I emigrated, and, you know, with a green card. Right. Um, and that was just before that basically takes up takes us up to uh you know the beginning when we got of, acquired uh, yeah yeah the china project yeah yeah so you know listening to you recount that i'm just struck by how how beijing in those years was just this this wonderful place where you could kind of instantaneously reinvent yourself where it just seemed like there were no restrictions on what we could do uh you know if you had a crazy idea you could just sort of go for it and nobody was going to stop you. Nobody was going to tell you, you know, that's a bad idea. You're you're an amateur. I wrote a column in That's Beijing about precisely this phenomenon, how liberating it actually was to be in this place where there wasn't anyone to kind of do a reality check, tell you don't quit your day job. You know, a lot of us, we were all, you know, we all had like half written novels and screenplays on our hard drives. You know, everyone's sitting in the bookworm with, <laughs> yeah, um, very different time. When we started Seneca back in 2010, I think that we had an inkling. I mean, I think that it was already fairly clear to us that there was a major shift happening, that there was a change taking place. And that became kind of a leitmotif that threaded through many years of the show. It was noticeable just in the years immediately following the Olympics. It's it's an obsession with me, actually. I mean, it's something I love to, to talk to people about, um, especially people who were there at the time, just reflecting on on that whole crazy chain of causality. What happened? What what are the main factors in your mind that you would point to for why you think things changed when they did? Remember, I, I used to call it the new truculence, but you know, it became yeah. something much worse than that. Um, I think we yeah. joked it was like the more it's the new fuculence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, we've talked about this many times, and I I circle back on. The, the ideas and uh, recently I've been thinking that it really started with the U.S. invasion of Iraq in, in 2003, at least when it comes to Sino-U.S. relations, just because I think for the first time in China, there began to be the sense that the U.S. is really doing a dumb thing. Um, hmm. 
But I don't know about that. I mean, there was also a sense in China that we better, you know, develop the military because look at look at the awesome firepower these people have. Well, yeah, I mean, um, that was the Kuwait war. I mean, there was, you know, before that, the, that... Even before that, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, but, I mean, I, the, the, the change, I, I would say, you know, 2008, you had the Olympics, and China came out of it looking very, very good uh, globally. Uh, I, I think it, it really was a, truly a, a soft power coup. And perhaps more importantly, it, within China itself, whatever any foreigners thought, Chinese people thought that China had arrived. You know, the journalistic cliche of the time was, China's coming out party to the sure. world. But it actually, you know, it was a good cliche because it was in many ways. It was the first time the world, many parts of the world, woke up to uh, the fact that China was no longer a poor, backward country. Um, and I think Chinese people also felt a, an enormous sense of pride. And then that was immediately followed by the global financial crisis when suddenly America looked pretty dumb in a way, to, hmm. to, I think, many Chinese people. You know, the, the people who were supposed to understand the whole world of business completely screwed it up. And that year, there was also the um, so-called, you know, YouTube or Facebook revolution in Iran where you had a, an election and then popular protests that were fueled by social media. Yeah, um, after Ahmadinejad was re-elected. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, started to... Uh, provoke a sense of uh, paranoia in the Communist Party, uh, both about how easily uh, it seemed to organize popular movements because mm-hmm. of the internet, but also the fact that they, you know, also being an authoritarian regime, to use a word you don't particularly like, uh, were vulnerable to the same forces that the Iranian government was. And uh, the, the same year, just a few months um, uh, basically, immediately following the Iran. Uh, uh, protests, you had the riots in Oromochi, yeah, deadly yeah. race riots essentially where Uyghurs and Han Chinese people were killing, uh, each, other. You know, killing yeah. each other on the yeah. streets with clubs um, and uh, uh, that was followed by about six months of the entire internet being shut down in Xinjiang you know, right. and that felt like the start of something and I have to say like in my own personal experience two days before the Urumqi riots on July the 3rd Dunway was blocked in yeah. China yeah. and uh, <laughs> so well, I mean, whatever the, that the, means the whole run up of like again, again it's like the anniversary date it's like you know, if you look at when Facebook actually was blocked, it was actually blocked in the run-up to to the anniversary date of, of you know June of '89, right? So at the end of May of '89, that's when I think Facebook actually finally got blocked. It end was, of May 2009. Right, right. And in yeah. in in the, the previous year, you know, it had been spotty. Yeah. Especially yeah. after March, after the Tibet riots in in, yeah. in, in 2008. It's interesting, though, Jeremy. I, I, I notice how much you emphasize the internet in in this um, this explanation. It's not one. It's not something I hear from a lot of other people, and it's something that I completely agree with. I mean, I think one of the things that people under-index on is the extent to which the the the, the party was absolutely terrified of the force of the internet. I, I mean, people don't. You know, I haven't seen a lot of books written about that, but you know. As I've often said, it was like impossible in that time to open up to the editorial pages of any broadsheet in America or in the UK and not see the argument being made that freeing the internet would bring down authoritarian regimes, right? Yeah. So, yeah. They were, yeah. And they then, were, you know, I mean, uh, 
we've we've kind of taken it up till 2009, but from end of 2010 was the the, uh, the Arab Spring, uh, yeah. The Arab Spring. So you know, December was the guy the uh, with the street stall in Tunisia, uh, self-immolated, and then January, February was the Arab Spring, and the, there was the people calling for jasmine revolution in China for jasmine strolls. Yeah, all, all uh, four or five internet. of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, people did gather, and things happened. Like, uh, the, you, were you the there? First... It was like mostly journalists. <laughs> Well, no, there were people who were, you know, people threw down a jasmine flower. There, I mean, there weren't a lot of them, but there was chat on the internet. Right, and right, what right. happened, that you will agree with me, uh, is that uh, then Ambassador John Huntsman happened to be coincidence in Wangfujing the very day uh, that one of the, you know, uh, there was supposed to be this gather, jasmine gathering. A very handsome bomber, bomber jacket. jacket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, I, you know, the Chinese authorities took note of that and yeah. they didn't like what they thought they were seeing. So, I, 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 yeah, the internet is hugely important. But, I, I mean, I think uh, the, the, other, the last thing I'd like to mention about the hardening of attitudes in China to to foreign and liberal ideas is I think one of the most telling pieces of writing over the last 20 years was the 10 grave problems inherited from the uh, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao administration, an essay written by Deng Yuan, who had been um, a big shot at the Communist Party party school, uh, you know, a scholar. He was the editor of Study Times, their, their publication. And he analyzed 10 problems that had been left behind that, you know, the next administration, i.e. Xi Jinping, uh, would have to, would have to tackle. Yeah. And they were, you know, very real problems. They were, you know, environmental pollution, corruption, inequality in society, you know, in all kinds of unequal distribution of resources um, and the instability that, uh, you know, came with these things. And you had Xi Jinping uh, appointed or anointed as the guy who actually had to take care of these things. And they were right. I mean, I, you know, remember Beijing in the, in the first decade of, of the century, if you had a black Audi with, you know, wujing like uh, people's armed police plates, you could do anything, you know. Yeah. You could ride yeah. over pedestrians and kill them and nobody would stop you. You could go through red lights. You could park wherever you wanted, you know. You'd go to, you know, the landmark hotel and there was a nightclub there that you know was notorious for being like a brothel that everybody in the city knew about and you know you had very very poor people who had to like look at these black tinted audis drive past i mean there was a sense that there were inequalities that 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 could lead to a crisis and i think very much xi jinping came along and was like i'm going to sort this stuff out but Part of it is that his way of sorting it out is to like lock everyone up and sense everybody and beat everybody up to, to, to be glib about it. Yeah, no, in, in, in those days, I remember Ian Johnson joking, Audi, the official car of official corruption. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, I mean, I think what you've, what you've just talked about, the, the, the 10 grave problems, uh, that really dovetails well with what Susan Shirk wrote in her book, uh, Over, Overreach, which is a really, really excellent exploration of another whole facet of the reasons of, for, for China's um, kind of hardening in, in you know, internal repression and external assertiveness, right? She actually talks about just what you were talking about. The, you know, it was, we thought of it as a feature, not a bug, that China's leadership during that time was collective. We always talk about, you know, we don't talk about the Hu Jintao era, we talk about the Hu and Wen era, right? I mean, it gives you an idea of how... How, how different. Of, yeah, how different yeah. it was and, and, and very collective. But as you say, you know, it gave rise to just really, really rapid corruption, a lot of, of 
serious social inequalities and things like that. But um, it was the the corruption and the ability of so many of the powerful Politburo members to kind of ensconce themselves into these you know power bases. These they had these uh, whole industries behind them, right? Um, you know, but you know, I mean, the good thing about it, of course, I mean, the corruption was bad, but the good thing about it was that it was almost a kind of a separation of powers uh, in the sense that, I mean, I remember like in the publishing industry, uh, yeah. you know, at you one could, point, Beijing scene, we had a license from one arm of the People's Daily that allowed us to publish. And, you know, we had a rival magazine that had a license from some other government entity that allowed them to publish. And we were both you know, allowed to kind of struggle against each other because there were two different backers who were both pretty powerful. That doesn't exist now. Yeah, I mean, back then in, in that in those times, if you were like in internet video, I, I was working for Yoku at one point, if you, if you recall. There were there was a jurisdictional fight. Does internet video get regulated by soft course, yeah, the state the, administration of radio, radio film, film and television, television, or the or uh, is it the Internet Authority? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The right, MIIT, the state, yeah. right? The Ministry of Ind- Industry and Information Technology. That's right. And then there were other people, you know, grasping for power, like the Wenhuabu, the Ministry of Culture, huh. always kind of impotently try to, you know, get their hands on some of some of the goodies. Right. Yeah. So no, no. Your your point is very. It's a it's a good one. That that in that time there was an effective division of of power, separation. Separation of, of powers makes it, I think, gives one the gives wrong impression. It too nice of a yeah gloss. I mean, it was it like warring states, so you could play one warlord <laughs> or it's the other. Kind More of like thing. that. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, and 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 I and it just reminds me of living in China. I noticed this thing happening with myself in my own politics. Right. I, you know, I'm a, I was a 20-something Berkeley graduate, right, when I went to China in 88 to stay there for my first year, uh, just fresh out of school, and the feeling, you know, myself very, very left-wing politically, right? I was really into, you know, things that were egalitarian and distributive and anti-capitalist and, you know, the usual. In my case, though, I think being in China for all that time, I found myself so habitually siding with or rooting for the kind of market reformers, for anyone who I thought was on the side of the private sector, as opposed to the SOEs, you know, those big, bloated, state-run enterprises, state-run enterprises. And and I think I maybe imbibed a little too much of the neoliberal Kool-Aid, especially in the 2000s, and only came to realize once I was like gasping and choking on pollution and, and, and seeing the horrific inequality around me and corruption and the materialism eventually just got too much for me. And I started being much more sympathetic to the new left and to, to some of the other uh, forces that were, were kind of mustering against those those social ills that, that we were seeing. Uh, did anything similar like to, to that happen to you in your own politics? Huh, that's, yeah, uh, that, 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 that's interesting. I mean, I, I think I um, have perhaps just always... How to put it? I went through a left-wing phase as a college student. And in fact, when I arrived in China, I remember one of the slogans I'd learned the English of that I most liked was, you know, like Asia, Africa, and Latin America unite and overthrow the American imperialists. You know, so, I mean, we're talking like undergraduate nonsense, really, that appealed to me. Um, but I never liked being told what to do. And I always found, like in China particularly, just the state, when it decided something, was so heavy-handed that I think 
I remained generally on the side of private enterprise. Uh, I, I don't think I drifted back leftward much. Although, I mean, I do believe in government regulation. You know, I, I, I'm not a libertarian. I, I think, you know, pollution is a problem. You know, climate change, um, just old-fashioned pollution is a problem that you can't solve without a heavy-handed government approach. Hmm. So I, I don't know, you know, if, just listening to me now, you can hear that I'm a little bit all over the place. I don't think I changed in the way that you described, though. Okay, interesting. I, I mean, I've, I've shared that experience with some others in you know who were in our cohort there and i have heard people you know th- say yeah that, that kind of happened to me too and i i, I never i didn't recognize myself you know. maybe maybe a better answer actually is that the opposite happened to me actually hmm. in fact okay. i think yeah a better answer is probably the opposite happened to me because uh, the tough times that we've sort of alluded to that i've had in china have mostly been because of government interference with what i was trying to do so I have found, you know, like living in the United States, it's one thing I really like that it's like, you know, here I am, get off my land, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> at the same time, I remember you, you know, in those go-go years of the, the mid-2000s, just really sort of singing the praises for how unfettered and how easy it was for you to start a company and things like in, in China. You, you were... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, you know, I, I guess what I learned was a very easy to start a company, but... Uh, to keep a company. No, that's a different proposition. Yeah. So we talked a little bit, I mean, you were saying earlier about how you know important it is to not just touch the trunk or the tusk or whatever of the elephant and see it all. But I mean, that's one of those things. I, I, was, I said I gave this talk about, you know, uh, what I look for in a China watcher. That is to say, I, I, I give this talk and I've given it a few places about what, you know, because we live in this world where not everybody's going to be uh, able to dedicate all that time to, to you know, becoming, quote-unquote, expert. That's well, a ridiculous word, of course. But, you know, you know to, to really be becoming familiar with all the ins and outs of, of Chinese politics and American policy. So they have to rely on other people. And so, you know, I, I propose a set of criteria, five things that I think you should look for in a China analyst does this person know what they're talking about? Is this person worth listening to? And, you know, I, I should emphasize that possessing those five qualities doesn't mean they're going to arrive at the exact same prescriptions that I would. But, you know, it, it's, it's I think, important for us to kind of know what to look for. What would your list look like, Jeremy? I don't have a list like you, I don't think. But I, I suppose the most important thing is if you're coming at it as an outsider to Chinese culture, you, you require an awful lot of immersion in the language and culture and history yeah. to even be able to say anything coherent. And if you're coming at it from as a Chinese person, you have to really figure out how to explain a lot of things that are not very easy to explain to an audience who has no idea where you're coming from. So mm, yeah. um, the dedication to you know, immersing oneself if you're coming from the outside in the language and the culture and the history of China, I think is, you know, it's a question of time that you have to put in. And if you haven't put in the time, you're just not going to get it. And, you know, if you're coming from China, you have to figure out what are the kinds of questions that people outside of China are, are, are want to know about. And you also have to come at it, you know, if you've come from the PRC system, you have to realize that the average American's worldview is fundamentally different. Yeah, yeah. And 
you can call those things whatever you want, but it, it, there is an amazing reluctance on the part of a lot of Chinese people who attempt to speak to the outside world to actually figure out what it is the outside world wants to know and how they come at the gaining of that knowledge. Yeah, and for that reason, they've been very, very ineffective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting. I I hadn't. I that's actually a whole another topic that I I should probably address in an essay or something. Uh, I think it's a yeah, it's a big, big, big interesting topic. So, Jeremy, I li- I recently listened to a guy I really admire, Andrew Batson. We we know you know him, right? He used to write, write for yes. the Wall Street Journal. Great, great guy. I, and he's been on Seneca, I believe, back in the, yeah, the yeah, old back in the day. Chinese uh, days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A couple of times, probably. Anyway, yeah. um, he, he was on Jude Blanchett's excellent Pekingology podcast. Uh, and he had, I mean, we're talking about kind of, you know, basic observations, things that, you know, help you kind of get the way Chinese people think Um that's that's a really super important thing to be able to, to talk about. And he did a, a fantastic job. He said Chinese people have this fundamental belief that they not only can be the best in any given field at any given endeavor, but that they should be the best. Um, I thought that was so true. I mean, it's 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 it, it never really occurred to me is to, to put it so succinctly, but it, it struck me as it resonated with me right away. I I have a couple of those kind of, uh, chestnuts that I'll haul out when people ask me, you know, what should I really know about the Chinese worldview? Or what, what, what are some of the things, the big picture kind of takeaways for you about Chinese people? I mean, I, it's, it's quite difficult to top that one. Um, yeah, that's I, a good one. I, I mean, I don't really know if I can think but of anything But you agree right with that now. one? That, that you, I, I do agree with that one. Yeah, I, 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 I would add a sort of corollary to it, which is your maxim about um, the difference between Chinese and Americans. They're both exceptionalist cultures, but American exceptionalism, let me see if I have it right, is the idea that all people on the world should be able to enjoy what Americans enjoy and that this is the right way to live. Right. Whereas Chinese exceptionalism is only the Chinese can do what the Chinese do and no other peoples can do it. Is that is that about right? Kind of, yeah. I mean, yeah, put it a little differently. I'd say, yeah, I mean, you know, American exceptionalism is proselytizing. It basically says, yeah, Amer- American institutions and values are, you know, true for all people in all times, the best. And the Chinese are, are exceptionalist in a very particularist way you know i mean it's right there in the way they always talk about so and so with chinese characteristics right there aren't universalist claims being made the idea is that china's own experiences are unique to china and and so i think there's really something to it when china insists that it's not trying to export a a a model right a china model even a development model I mean, it's just like, look at the language thing, right? We we would never have a television show in America with people from other countries who, oh my God, can speak fluent English, right? Yeah. It just would never happen, right? So yeah, there's, this, yeah. there's this idea of China itself as inherently inaccessible to the outside and anyone who does seem to have it, you know, is suddenly accorded this label Zhongguotong, right? You know, oh, yeah. wow, he's a Zhongguotong because he can say yeah. Ni Hao really. He can say Ni Hao. Yeah, it starts after you learn to say Ni Hao, basically. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, but yeah, 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 I mean, it's difficult to top those two. I mean, food, I think, is like, if you don't understand <laughs> Chinese food, you can't, like, the obsession with food and how important it is and how good it is. If you don't understand those, then you you have no way of understanding China and and you're also a very sad person. Um, <laughs> that I can absolutely agree with. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, what, what do you, tell me, have you got some other maxims that you, you know, China yeah, 101 yeah. in two minutes, how to understand yeah, the Chinese mind? 
there's the one I always use. I mean, this isn't about the, the eternal Chinese mind or anything like that, but it, it's definitely about understanding today, you know, modern China today. I mean, I've probably said this before on the show, but I, I, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is just the compressed nature of the modernization experience, how just in one working lifetime, you went, you know, in 1978, 1979 to today, it's like one person's lifetime. You, you were a graduate from, you know, junior high and you started your first job in 79 at the dawn of reform and opening. The, the you know, per capita GDP was like less than 200 bucks, right? And today it's like six. And some pounds. people were living like just about medieval lives. Yeah, yeah. Cooking on, on, on fire. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Urban um, people, people yeah. in the hutongs in Beijing cooking on actual open fires. That's and right. Going to a latrine, like non flush, no plumbing. Yeah. So romantic, right? <laughs> so romantic. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, I think there's the other thing is the economic dislocation that went with that modernization and in, uh, industrialization, where when we were first in China, people just assumed we were really rich because we were from foreign countries. <laughs> and, you know, and in fact, we. In terms of disposable income, we generally were quite rich. And now, like, all our Chinese friends have Lamborghinis. You know, there's the story you tell about in your last years in Beijing in that apartment building. And you're the guy on the electric moped. Right. And everybody else has a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. Yeah, I was a freaking director at Baidu. I was pulling down, you know, good good money. Even yeah. And, yeah. But everyone was, yes. Yeah, it was insane. Actually, that came from, so Evan, um, Evan Osnos did that, that remember that, that, this American Life episode with you and me in it, right? Right. So um, the bumper they used, they didn't end up putting it in the show, but the one that they put on like the previous week's show was him and me walking around in the garage and me kind of like pointing to the different vehicles. Oh, in that's the right. Yeah, and, I remember listening to that. Right, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is a Lamborghini. About, yeah. This is a Maserati. Yeah, right, right, right. right. And then saying, yeah, here's my vehicle. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, a little right. electric bicycle. Right, 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 I know. So, I mean, there's that, right? There's the, the, the incredibly... I, I think when we say, like, um, you know, how do you understand Chinese people? I mean, we are talking about China now. We're not talking right, about right, the right, eternal right. Chinese yeah, yeah. person that goes just back 5,000 years or something. So to, let me just finish out that thought really quickly. But I think those are basically three things that, that you should know that come out of that observation, about that you know compressed experience of modernization. One is that they're going to have a different relationship with technology, right? They have basically never known a time where, you know, improvements in their technological lives and improvements in their, you know, their other lives in their health and their education in their housing and their income generally uh, haven't improved in lockstep right so they don't have this this the same kind of fear of technology that that seems to be so pervasive now in the West and the second is that you know I mean this is something that Barry Naughton said a long time ago but I think it's absolutely true they're gonna have a little bit of faith a little more faith in the ability of their leadership to steer them through really kind of difficult you know and very very uh, rapid change and the third thing I, I think is pretty. I mean, this is my. I use the Tom Hanks movie Big uh, to illustrate this. You know, in in that movie, a young eleven year old, you know, actor who's playing the same guy as Tom Hanks later on, he makes a a, a wish at this you know fortune telling machine at a midway carnival uh, to to grow up. You know, I wish I were big. And the next morning he wakes up and he's like Tom Hanks. You know, he's in his it was like in his thirties then. That's China, right? It, it still it has the outward appearance of an adult. You know, you got the gleaming forest skyscrapers and the, the amazing, you know, tech industry and the amazing high-speed rails. But the software hasn't changed that much. It hasn't. It just doesn't because it just doesn't update as quickly. 
And so in this one lifetime So that explains the thin-skinned nature Why they still have such a, a chip on their shoulder About so many things Why it still you know hurt the feelings of the Chinese people It's why yeah. you know, Messi the, didn't me, play in exactly, Hong Kong Messi And now Hu Xijin right. is having a, exactly, a fit yeah. exactly. It's this, this quick This readiness to feel offense and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I think that, that makes that, a lot of sense. Yeah. So yeah. now here's the interesting thing because I think you know we, we we are going through the next decade is going to be different and you know there's an economic slowdown and no matter what happens it's not we're not I mean I I don't think anybody serious thinks we're going to suddenly go back to the go go years where no, of no. you know eight percent growth or whatever so everybody's going to have to get used to much slower growth slower technological progress slower slower material progress i mean yeah. when you go from a latrine toilet to like a you know apartment that looks like a five-star hotel room where do you go from there wh- yeah. how do you make it feel better tomorrow you know so i i, I think the next few you played years it with be- gold <laughs> <laughs> you played it with gold that's right uh, <laughs> hey so um, what about what about some of the ideas that you find to be Especially pernicious, but you know, commonplace among people who actually do work on contemporary China. What well, are there some things that are you know common? Kind of everyone seems to believe this, but not me. I don't know. I don't. I don't think there's any one thing in particular. Uh, um, I I can say. I, I think I would just say that there's a tendency which I have to guard against my in myself to settle into certain views about China and. Once you're in, you know, a certain camp, to not be willing to get out of that camp, and I think right. it goes both ways. You get That's people everyone, who, yeah. you know, get extremely defensive about how wonderful the Communist Party is, and you get people who can't hear the word China without saying you know, terrible things about it. Uh, I think that's the most dangerous trap. And it's, uh, you know, different people are guilty of it. Some people all of the time, some people just some of the time. I think all of us probably can be a little bit guilty of it if you... Oh, yeah, yeah. None of us, none of the time. It's an incredibly frustrating place to engage with, you know, no matter what your views are. So, yeah, I I, I, I I think that's the thing. I can readily confess to feeling this instinct... To be defensive, right? I mean, yeah. of course. Of I, I course. mean, I, I think mean, that's fairly obvious if you know your work, right? And uh, as it's probably equally obvious that my first instinct is um, to be critical. But, but I can fight it down. You can fight it down. I mean, it's it's possible to do. It's just we have to be conscientious about it. Yeah, and sometimes you don't want to fight it down, right? Because sometimes that's the right instinct. So, I mean, that's the tough thing. I think you've got to – you can't just relax. And if you want to be uh, honest – uh, you can't just relax and settle into a way of thinking about China. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, you know, obviously because of my own ethnic roots, because of, you know, my, my own socialization, and, you know, because I'm married into a Chinese family, because, you know, I, I yeah, it's like that's my mother you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I get it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, me too, right? Um, well, yeah, I mean, you lived I, I there for so long. There. Yeah, yeah you, uh, you did, you did. You were like 23 to 43 or something like that? Is that? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, wow. Yeah, 23 to 43. Yeah, gosh. Um, I remember thinking that because because uh, I, I once came up with a little song of the, the Ballad of Davy Crockett and to introduce you on the, uh, and I had to think, 20 years in China from the age of 23. And no one do his friends. <laughs> no, he moved to the Green Estate in the land of Tennessee. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm gonna miss you know if not having you on the show as much. So I can't come up with those stupid intros. Those are those. Well, are those I mean, every week would be a bit much, so it's probably better this way. I could do it. I can make you know, another I could, choice. I could yeah, no, it. I know you're good. American yeah. politics hands. So me let enough. me turn the tables on you because you've mostly been questioning me. Uh, you <laughs> must get asked a lot by younger people who have studied Chinese, who are interested in China, lived there for a little bit, uh, who are interested in pursuing a, a career that relates to China in some way. Uh, do you have any stock advice that you give? Well, I mean, I have a stock uh, a, a thing that I tell them, which is like, don't look at me. I lucked into freaking everything. I, I never like deliberately set out to. I, I got, I mean, it phenomenally lucky. So I, I'm the worst person to look to as sort of a, a model for, you know, how to plan career success when it comes to, to China. No. But I, I mean, I don't think I can offer much advice except kind of the cognitive ad- advice. I mean, you know, the, the old things that we always say, like, you have to be able to keep two ideas in your head that are totally contradictory at the same time, and they can both be true. And I can rattle off a bunch of things, you know, that I, I know both to be true. Like, one, you know, these are things that kind of roll off my tongue now with, with re- real ease. I know, for example, with absolute confidence that Chinese are more freighted and burdened by their history. You know, they suffer from such inertia because of that great burden of history than anyone else in the world. And also, Chinese are the people who are, like, most capable of instantaneous self-reinvention in the whole world. I mean, those things are both true to me, and they're completely opposite, right? So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the cognitive stuff like that. I mean, you know, I, I give them my, hey, you got to be really, really humble. You have to know what you don't know. You have to be totally aware of your epistemic limitations when it comes to China because it's freaking opaque, right? There's just a lot of stuff you're never going to know. So don't believe those people who make these, you know, grand conclusions based on, you know, cherry-picked quotes from some Xi Jinping speech, uh, you know, because somebody can do the exact same to prove the exact opposite point. Um, I tell them, you know, the, the important thing is country feel. I mean, just, just you just have to have this sort of in, intuition, um, and the only way to acquire that is by prolonged exposure. And, of course, the really tragic thing is that, that nobody, I mean, you know, there's single-digit hundreds of people now studying in China, and, you know, there were 100,000 100, of them when, when we were there, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's a very different environment uh, for yeah. you know, lots lots of different reasons. I mean, uh, my advice is much more practical. I just say to people, you know, you, you probably won't be able to make much money out of it, so you better make sure that you're interested and yeah, you want yeah, to engage it. with it because yeah. it's not like a career choice to uh, to do China stuff. Really, it's a choice of interest, and huh. you, you know, in many cases like ours, you have to kind of make up a career if you want to, you know. Yeah, do it. <laughs> so. We're both doing that again. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, what what career are you got to make up now? Well, uh, you know, I'm. I need to have a bit of a break from uh, regular publishing. I mean, having basically been doing it since 1997, I need a break from the like weekly or daily uh, media production uh, uh, life. Um, so I, I, I'm go- I'm working as an editorial fellow for China File. Yeah. Uh, so I'm doing editing work. And I'm doing a bit of other writing and fiddling about and just uh, trying to decide what I want to do when I grow up, really, um, and spending a lot of time with my children. Um, oh, that's good. Because they're still at an age where they actually like me. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> or so, so they say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I need to just think a bit, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I understand you've been fishing and depleting the fish stocks in your little pond. 
Well, I actually uh, I restocked it before the winter with uh, catfish, uh, so hopefully oh, wow, wow. that's uh, you know. Um, yeah, 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 and they're they're good. It's um, uh, different. We had this fish in South Africa called barbell, which is a kind of catfish, but they they weren't very good. But these Southern American catfish are very good. Too. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, catfish is really great in Shuijuyu. So you get oh. yeah, yeah. So um, nice. I can I can recommend you a really good Shuijuyu kind of like prep mix. That oh, is just absolutely delicious, yeah. Oh, good. Bai My jia. son is it's starting the, the, to like spicy food, so we can uh, good, make good, it good. good. You know, uh, we, were, we were just talking about like our our generation back then. What was special to you, do you think, about our generation of China analysts? You know, people who were now in their, I guess, 40s, 50s, maybe even early 60s, right? Who went to China, let's say, in their 20s or 30s and back, you know, in the 80s, in the 90s, uh, maybe even, you know, anything post pre-Olympic, really, uh, there was, I feel like there's a different flavor to them than the people who went after. Um, what do you think are, are, are the common experiences that molded us and gave us our approach, and insofar as there is one, it, uh, that shared kind of particular character? Well, I think one thing is that before 2008, I mean, maybe it was already changing, you know, post-WTO, but before 2008, let's say, China wasn't a glamorous place to go, really. In, no, not know, at all. Uh, certainly in the 90s and early 2000s, the average American or South African or Brit thought you were a complete oddball if you chose to go to China. You know, it was a hardship posting for uh, multinational companies. Um, so people who went at that time, they, you know, it attracted us. And it wasn't people who went to Thailand and, you know, chilled out on the beach because China was never like that. I mean, even if you were in Hainan Island, it wasn't like that. So you had to be driven by something aside from the search for an easy life or, you know, prestige. You were driven by right. some some other weird thing. So, I mean, there were a lot of, you know, oddballs and eccentric people and characters and people who may not particularly eccentric, but certainly were driven by something a little unusual. I think that's one factor. I think um, the other thing that sort of started in the 80s in a very small way and then really gathered speed in like the 90s and early 2000s was uh, Brendan O'Kane, who's a uh, scholar of Chinese literature and translator and yeah. old friend of ours, he used to have this thing. What did he call it? Feral sinologists. Feral sinologists. Feral sinologists, right? And right. I guess the idea was that whereas before the 90s, you, if you wanted to study China, you actually had to do, like get a, a really formal job or you had to go through some very limited uh, channels, you know, studying at a university. Whereas from the 90s, you could just go to China and get a job teaching English and teach yourself Chinese in a dormitory and like just kind of, live in China and study China in the field, right? Yeah, you are the, the archetypal feral sinologist. Yes, I, absolutely. I didn't study Chinese at university because there wasn't any Chinese classes in South Africa when I was at university. Right. Um, and then I lived in a worker's dormitory and learned Chinese from migrant workers. So, you know, that was a rather different experience than was available really much before then because, you know, you couldn't, I mean, from, you know... I mean, Jeremy Barme, my friend, was uh, uh, in the Cultural Revolution the later years of, you know, in the 70s uh, at university in in China, and they weren't allowed to 
associate with Chinese right. uh, students too much. And that lasted really until the early 1990s. You know, the universities were segregated. Whereas if you got a job in a, and lived in a workers' dormitory, there was no segregation. You could actually learn more language than was available to university students. So it was, you know, I mean, a lot of people learned a lot of good stuff at university too. I'm not uh, deriding it in any way, but there was a lot of ways to learn about China that suddenly opened up to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly what I would have said. I mean, that's that's what it is, is that we had the ability to go to China and just actually sort of live there and absorb it um, and and get that country feel that I keep talking about. I don't know how, what else to call it. Um, I'm sure there's a good German word for it. <laughs> it, it's, it's just a kind of set of intuitions and... and uh, I mean, part of it obviously is is linguistic facility and all that stuff. But anyway, yeah, man. Um, I think it's also just getting into problems, like you know, when you're on tour with Tang Dynasty or like me, you know, doing media startups, and you have like problems in society, and you have to solve them in some way, and then you you know you start to see patterns that you can also see in sometimes the way the government behaves. And oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I had that. That was. You know, I, I keep thinking about how many times, you know, we ran into the same so- sorts of problems and the very creative solutions that we came up with. Like, you know, that venue operator who just decided to escape through the bathroom window rather than actually paying the band. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we I, saw that happen in other circumstances, right? <laughs> right, right. Or, or, yeah, or having, yeah. You know, the hotel won't let you leave because your bill's not paid. So, you know, you learn how to tie sheets together with knots good enough to lower, you know, Marshall stack heads out the window. And, you know, how, how many symbols you could put into a single bed sheet. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. What a what a hoot and what a blast it's been talking to you about this stuff. I mean that little scroll down memory lane, but I think there's there's, you know, uh useful and, and maybe even wise pearls that you've you've helped dispense here that um I hope it's not too much of a wank. You know, I look forward to getting you back on and uh and chatting some more about this stuff because we have not even come close to exhausting uh what we could talk about. Yeah, it's been fun. Um so Jeremy, one more time yeah, what, what, before before we go to recommendations and all that stuff, tell me, I hear you might be working on a book. Is that possible? Oh uh, yeah, I'm writing some, scribbling some things down. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 trying to you know figure out okay uh, how to how to make well, a book. I can, I'm trying to imagine what 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 it would be like for somebody who can't touch type to actually write a book. I mean, you learn Chinese by yourself in a dorm. I mean, maybe you could learn to touch type, and it would save you a lot. <laughs> I, I, I type at the right speed for thinking. Um, ah, I see, I see. Okay, yeah, you could do the same on it, like on a phone, right? You could do your thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Hey, listen, uh, I want to make it a quick appeal for you listeners uh, for for help. I, when I learned about the impending demise of the China Project, I really resolved that I was going to keep Seneca going in some way. I had to wait a little bit for the dust to settle. Um, but, you know, I've known all along that I wanted to continue producing what I believe are really high-quality conversations that explore what is behind the news. Um, I'm still driven primarily by that mission, but I also have a family to feed. And as of this fall, I'm going to have two kids in college, most likely two kids out of state for college. So I, I need your help. 
So consider supporting my work in one of three ways. You can sign up for Patreon, where I'm asking for just 10 bucks a month, or subscribe to the new Seneca Substack, which I will be launching uh, in time for the release of this program. Either way, you will get the transcript to the show. You'll get a weekly essay by me or some other, on, on you know, a China-related subject, uh, of something near and dear to my heart. I'm talking to some of your favorite contributors from the China Project about maybe including some of their writing as part of that offering. You will also get bonus podcast episodes, recordings of things like, you know, talks that I'm, I'm giving, uh, public talks, audio versions of essays, oh, much more than that. I'm working on some really cool translation projects that I'll hopefully be keeping you abreast of. I also plan to take the show on the road. Uh, so subscribers are going to have big discounts on admission price for live Seneca shows and the mini conferences that I'm hoping to put on. And so if you run a company or a center, or if uh, you work at a law firm or run a law firm or a think tank or something, please consider sponsoring Seneca. Uh, every bit makes a difference. So shoot me an email at SenecaPod at gmail.com and let's talk about what we might do together. Or if you're interested in having Seneca come to your town for a live event, let's talk about how we can make that happen. All right. All right Jeremy, you ready to go on to recommendations? Yes, I am. All right. Well, you're up first, as is our habit. So first thing, obviously, I'm just going to plug what I'm doing now, uh, China File. Yeah, uh, wonderful stuff. Some, Susie Jakes, yeah. Yeah. Susie Jakes is amazing. Um, she really is. So that's just Chinafile.com. And then my... Uh, book recommendation is a book called The Ghosts of Evolution by Connie Barlow. And this is something I discovered because a couple of years ago in the fall, I was walking through the woods near my home in uh, the holler west of Nashville. Storied gold corn holler. That's right. And I came across this large like fruit thing that was shiny and then a, a pattern sort of like a walnut. It looked like a brain almost, a bright green, like lime, bright lime green. And I looked it up, and it's something called an Osage Orange is one of its names. And it's got a bunch of other names. And it's this enormous fruit that is inedible. So in other words, there's no reason for it to be a fruit. Nobody eats it. No animals eat it. Uh, uh, And I discovered that it's what they call an evolutionary anachronism. So there used to be megafauna, like mammoths and giant sloths, used to eat this fruit. That's why the fruit evolved and poop it out and then distribute the seeds. And then those megafauna died off, but the fruit is still around. And it was um, used for a short time by uh, the tree. Uh, The Osage uh, Native Americans used to make bows out of it because it's... Yeah, it's great wood for bows. It's the best in the world. Very high uh, work to tension or I don't know what the right word is. Um, And and then the settlers, the, you know, uh, European settlers who, you know, made farms in the U.S. used it uh, to fence off like cattle fields. But then barbed wire was invented, so they stopped doing that. And, you know, nobody was hunting with bows in large numbers. So nobody was using the tree anymore, and it's, it's, uh, it's still around. Anyway, this extraordinary bright green fruit, monkey brain is the other name for the fruit, which is quite evocative. And so I wanted to learn about this, and there's this book called The Ghosts of Evolution by Connie Barlow, and it's all about these kind of evolutionary anachronisms, things that evolved for a certain reason, and that reason no longer exists. And among them is the ginkgo tree, which is yeah, probably yeah. familiar to all of us. Uh, yeah, I, I actually take ginkgo, an extract of ginkgo leaves, um, supposedly good for my neurological condition. <laughs> the supplement business is the biggest business 
Yeah, especially if you you're know, Chinese. It's yeah. a big business. You, you remember, yeah, no, I mean, it's like always you. like all yeah. the Chinese yeah. people in, in that yeah. supplement aisle at Costco. Well, I think Americans actually have that in common with Chinese people. Have you be, have you looked at the supplement section of your local I supermarket? Have. It's insane. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I take so... All right. Great recommendation, Jeremy. That's really, really cool. So Connie is like C-O-N-N-I-E or is it? That's right. And okay. Barlow, B-A-R-L-O-W. Oh, cool. Excellent. I'm going to get that. Yeah. All right. So one thing that I can say for having taken all this time off is that I have accumulated a good long list of recommendations. So I'm going to do one that's very self-serving uh, and then one that's just plain fun. So the self-serving one is my brother, Jay, who is a Broadway writer and producer and a lawyer, actually, by training. Uh, he, he puts out this substack called The Status Quo, K-U-O. Check that out. But um, he wrote a book called Ma in All Caps, which is sort of a family memoir. He calls it a memoir, uh, uh, focused on, on my, my mom and on the distaff side of, of our family. And it stretches back over a, a whole century. It's got you know quite a bit of history in it. Um, he describes it as as Amy Tan meets David Sedaris because yeah, it is very. It's funny. It, it focuses on sort of humorous things um, that have happened, and you know it's about as accurate a description as I could come up with. Amy Tan meets David Sedaris. Uh, around Thanksgiving, I started doing the audiobook recording of that book, and uh, it is now out on audible.com. Uh, I have to say it was very challenging to do all the accents. I had to do like this German missionary and, and Italians and uh, and then, of course, you know, lots of different uh, Chinese accents rendered into what he believed were kind of the uh, English-speaking world's equivalent. So I have kind of like this 1920s mid-Atlantic that I, I'd use for, for my maternal grandmother. Anyway, um, Check it out. The audiobook is is a lot of fun. I think you'll actually um, enjoy it and learn something about the crazy family that I come from. The other recommendation I have is for the novels of a Spanish writer named Arturo Perez Reverte. Uh, they're called the Alatriste novels about Captain Alatriste. Uh, there are seven of them available in English so far. I have devoured them all uh, during this hiatus. They are set in Spain's golden age during you know the earlier part of the Thirty Years' War up to like the 1630s, and um, they're told in first person from the perspective of this young Basque soldier whose father is killed fighting in Flanders, and um, the, the 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 dead father asks his best friend, the Captain Altruiste of the title, to, to raise his son. So it's you know Altruiste is the central character, uh, and it's written by his you know his uh, young ward. Uh, he Altruiste is like this mercenary. He's like this deadly swordsman, but with like this poet's soul um you know he's just the coolest cat uh actually in the movie version of this he's played by Viggo Mortensen if you can get an idea of, of how cool he is Viggo Mortensen by the way who grew up in Latin America speaks fluent fluent Castilian Spanish and it's really really cool to watch him um but Alatriste is um or you know this whole book series like any good historical fiction it is it's a vehicle for learning about that time period um so this is, you know, Spain at the height of its decadence, um, but also, you know, where the culture is at, at its full flower. You know, Cervantes, the playwright, um, Lope de Vega, our characters in it, or Cervantes is in there a lot, but the poet, actually, Francisco de Quevedo, is a major character in the book, 
and it is shot through with all sorts of really great humor. They're just a blast. The English translations are by this woman named Margaret Sayers Peden, and they are extraordinarily skillful because of the way she presents the, the many, many poems in the book, all, all t- tons of poems. Uh, and they're, they're rendered in the original rhyme and, and meter. They're all preserved really well, so it's, it's quite a skill. Yeah, so Arturo Perez Reverte, the Alatriste novels. That's my recommendation. Jeremy, man, what a blast. Yeah, what a blast for us. I, I mean, you know, I hope the listeners don't think it's too much of a wank, but uh, I had fun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, off I go then. <laughs> that was fun, Kaiser. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Seneca Podcast. The show is produced, recorded, engineered, edited, and mastered by me, Kaiser Guo. Support the show at patreon.com slash Seneca or at Seneca.substack.com or email me at SenecaPod at gmail.com if you have ideas on how you can help out. Thanks to the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Center for East Asian Studies for supporting the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.